episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In today's episode, we introduce Patrick Fogel, co-founder and CFO of autonomous driving startup Autonomous GmbH. Since exiting the global navigation company TomTom in 2017, Patrick now heads their office operations in Berlin while pursuing his passion for angel investing. We'll be discussing the commercialization of university technology, bootstrapping for flexibility, capitalization as an exit strategy, and our 20-plus year friendship. Hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. There's a saying in English, you have a face for radio. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, that's the great thing about, about podcasts yeah. is appearance doesn't matter. And what I find really great is no one's judging the way you look or the way you dress. It's kind of a deep dive into someone's brain. When you have a conversation and you dig a little deeper into something that they're experts on, you really get to see how smart they are. Mm. You know, it may not be interesting to one person, but there's someone out there that's going, this is a topic that's interesting to me, and they're riveted. Well, Patrick, you know, you and I have known each other a long time, so this is the first podcast that I get to record with someone I've got a long history with. So, uh, you know, I want to start by thanking you for inviting me to your beautiful office in Berlin on the river here and taking time out of your Saturday from family and life to uh, sit in front of this microphone with me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Garrett. I was really thrilled to, to hear your coming because I liked our last conversation. It's so fun to run into an old friend uh, every five or ten years and catch up with a lot of or you call it war stories <laughs> to tell. So, um, yeah, I really, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. You and I have both come a, a long way from crazy nights on inflatable unicorns and surf town parties. And how long have we known each other? I remember you came to a friend's house when we were going swimming at the Lake of Constance as the big brother from America, <laughs> <laughs> looking like Johnny Knoxville uh, <laughs> by then. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, quite regularly uh, over the time you visited your mom in uh, the Lake of Constance, right? So it has to be uh, 20 years now. Well, my friend, you have come a long way from those days and some pretty amazing things have kind of happened on, on both of our journeys, but I'm really looking forward to hearing a little bit more about your experience. I'd be really interested if you could just kind of tell your story of where you come from, to how you got to where you are today. It was a long ride and I, uh, if I look back it uh, all sounds as if it was planned out that way for me. <laughs> I, I think in a, in a good position now. Um, it hasn't always been that clear judging from you know um, being not the brightest and best student <laughs> of all times you know failing in school a lot and um, yeah switching schools still making uh, Abitur tours somehow and then um, yeah deciding what I uh, want to choose as a profession and I think I have always decided uh, toward creating 
broad opportunities for myself. So um, and maybe also not always going the toughest route. So um, when I chose to go for business administration studies, it was the easy choice for me because you know I wasn't necessarily passionate about it, but I know I could do it. I was good at it in school, and I knew back then. Betriebswirtschaftslehre was something that would still have a, a broad uh, couple of options as a profession without choosing like one specific thing. I didn't have that profession in mind that I really want to become this or that. So I'd really always go that route. What would open up a lot of opportunities that I don't know yet. someone who has made a career out of commercializing university technology innovations, perhaps you can talk a little bit about your educational background. So in Germany we had this um, system, ZVS, Zentrale Vergabestelle für Studienplätze, so basically means uh, you have a right for a um, place to study, um, but um, you do not have the right to choose a location uh, specifically. Um, they can decide for you where there is enough space to take you on. Mm -hmm. So you just apply, you have like a list of universities you uh, would prefer and uh, uh, like choose three of them. But everybody chooses the same universities and uh, as a southern German uh, you tend to stay <laughs> in your area somewhere. So I didn't get any of my choices and they just chose for me. And it was a place called uh, Freiberg uh, in the middle of Saxonia, mm -hmm. like 600 kilometers from home. So just to put this in comparison, it's like a six-hour drive uh, when you can be in Italy in three hours. Right. <laughs> it was really um, not the obvious choice for me, but um, then I looked at it and um, I quickly found out that everybody who was there studying business administration was in the same situation. Nobody chose to go there and this uh, became a melting pot for people with maybe not the best uh, grades graduating and some nice mixer of people who are open enough to leave their hometown far away and uh, start something new for themselves, by themselves. So it's like the university for late bloomers? Maybe it is, <laughs> yeah. So And it, it always was an interesting time because, you know, um, the university was uh, has a long history. It's actually the oldest um, Montana university, like for... Um, geology and you know you have all this mining industries uh, that has traditionally been in that area and this is um, this was the uh, reputation of the so after um, the reunification they took on business administration that was pretty new there so a lot of professors from the western part of Germany um, and um, the attractive thing was that you still had this old structures, you know, very GDR-like, you know, uh, mm -hmm. communist-style town, but with a lot of things blossoming, you know, you could see there's some momentum in rebuilding that whole uh, structure, and um, there were constant changes during uh, our universities and um, uh, you know, our time there, and um, I think we all uh, cherished the situation that it was uh, a familiar atmosphere. 
So um, I stayed and did my full studies there for quite some time, yeah, almost six years. And also um, went to Dresden, which is like a 30 minute uh, train ride from there. Studying was still free in Saxonia, so I could just enroll in Dresden without an extra efforts. It was really, really cheap to live there. You know, we had uh, great apartments, uh, old, um, but uh, yeah, we made it uh, nice for ourselves there. And so, yeah, I, I really uh, liked to study then. So how did you go from business school in Freiburg to being an entrepreneur in Berlin? There were two influences that basically brought me to the city and the topic. My first influence was during that time, um, there were this new um, entrepreneurship, uh, academic way of researching uh, business administration around young companies because uh, Obviously, um, you know, the whole science around business administration was about big companies, you know, st studying yeah. the mechanics of a, of a, of a huge uh, system right. and, you know, going into you know, how can I influence marketing with the tools given, with the history and statistics I can use. And you don't have that in a startup. Yeah. Right. And so there was this, this entrepreneurship chair uh, in Dresden from Professor Shevchik that... Um, took this on as a main topic to say, well, we have they had two main topics, one uh, roads of education, one was technology and innovation management, mm -hmm. the other one was entrepreneurship. Yeah, I was interested in that, that my uh, main part of my uh, main studies in Dresden there became associated with writing business plans, you know, together with uh, actually um, real founders from the technical part of this university who, who approached the chair to uh, find students to help them with, you know, spinning their um, ideas into a business plan. So often business ideas are coming from the business-minded people and there's such a discussion on where do we find the technical talent. A lot of people forget that the technical talent also needs those business skill sets to take the technology or the innovation and commercialize it and make it market viable. I'm a huge believer in that interdisciplinary element, you know. I, I, so um, when I finished studies and um, we had uh, our first look out for jobs, um, um, I found something at the Free University um, um, with the goal to write a concept for um, the chair of biocomputational uh, mathematics. So um, a mixture between computer sciences and mathematics uh, applied to um, life sciences, basically. So we had one year to uh, write a concept that would turn into a foundation of our innovation lab. We were surrounded by highly technical people who knew exactly what they uh, wanted to do, but the challenge was like to filter it, bring it down to a level that others would understand it. Uh, and you know, at the end of the day, you might have some some evaluators of those concepts that are into the topic, but the chances are higher that you have to f bring it down to a level everybody can understand right. it. I knew I could do that, and um, I also had uh, a feeling that it would be a great start for my profession because, again, a lot of broad opportunities arising. You know, a few things to, to learn from it. Um, it's always nice to have a technology topic that you're interested in because you can't stop learning about it, you know, you can go into depth of that. Although I had some uh, <coughs> coding courses, I was never somebody to write a line of code, but I would understand why it's needed and uh, enough to throw around enough buzzwords that would make sense, you know. <laughs>
And so um, there was the consulting aspect of it to say, well, we this chair of they have so many great things they do in research but which of these could be applied to something everybody would see that this is has a market value so there's that yeah commercialization commercial so. exactly yeah. so this is actually the mm, uh, most obvious part why you would bring somebody from the business background in to say well help us spin it into something that would make this thing you know so we had a full year to write that concept um, turned out well for us we raised uh, two and a half million for them to build that innovation lab. Information-based medicine, we call it, and it was aimed towards that appearing market of personalized medicine. from the life sciences and personalized medicine, a subject you previously knew little about, to an autonomous vehicle project, something I know is right up your alley. That's exactly my topic, more than life sciences, you know, though I've been the biggest uh, <laughs> David Hasselhoff fan ever. <laughs> I, there was no uh, uh, evening at uh, 6.30 where I didn't watch ORF Knight Rider and uh, <laughs> I strongly believed uh, in, in in this topic, you know, so uh, naively because I had no technical background to 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 know whether it's working or not. But uh, the the outlook was there. I think uh, that's something that uh, we should strive for. So the purpose was there. The I know the team was cool, um, and so this was a perfect mixture. And we build up the autonomous labs, the innovation lab at the artificial intelligence chair at the Free University, um, employed f uh, 12 full-time researchers on that topic. And you had a whole new learning curve then, because you went from medical data, where you were kind of translating this technological space into rational business marketability, and now you were switching to a completely different science discipline. Uh, yes and no. So it was still software, basically, right? So, so it's uh, the uh, it was even the same chair. The others were a bit stronger towards mathematics and modeling complex systems, being the human body. The other um, part was uh, transferring basic robotic know-how onto the car. Mm -hmm. So the car in the mindset of a roboticist is just a robot on wheels. So you need always the same three elements uh, when you make that. Um, the first one is uh, being, we have a perception layer, you use all the sensors and uh, like the human uses his eyes and ears to have an, uh, a perception of the, of the surrounding of the environment. And the car uses the sensors and then you have the second layer which is the decision making layer so you uh, can apply certain rules that you for example know by because uh, there are rules how to drive mm -hmm. there are some other things you wouldn't know and figure out what is the rule behind it but this is the decision making element and then you have the third element which is uh, basically the action uh, side of it to bring it to make the car accelerate, uh, brake, uh, stuff like that. Uh, or for the human, it is like moving your hands, uh, the whole uh, right, right. actuation on it. And um, so all we do is always thinking in these different uh, pieces of the puzzle and bringing them together. 
seamlessly. So the the shift to the next was relatively seamless. Obviously, a little bit of learning, but you were able to make that transition. You are completely right. I had a huge learning curve how to how to approach that. But um, uh, the great thing about my uh, uh, co-founders and the people around me that they were very um, for technical minded people they were already on a very high level when it comes to communicating what they do also um, Professor Rojas um, one of his main skills was to bring that those science topics into a popular awareness uh, uh, stage so he was always very good at identifying topics that would be the next hot stuff so and um, for autonomous cars for us it was obvious for the rest of the industry it was not <laughs> so um, for the first years we were always uh, evangelizing and uh, answering the question uh, uh, if it's coming or not um, when was this so um, 2010 2010 so 29 to 2010 years. Yeah. I, I want to hear the where the story evolved from. So you you joined the new chair and you started to kind of grow the team behind it in the first few years while you were diving deep and getting into the conferences and building the network and uh, where, where did it go from there? So we did that um, university research and um, really guided by Professor Rojas um, went from one uh, spectacular uh, experiment to the other. You know, there were some things that really caught on in the media. We had the first mind-controlled car. <laughs> it was also one thing that, uh, uh, you know, we had this uh, scientific approach first to say, well, we work with other researchers who have those EEG headsets on a scientific level, and it turned out to be difficult, so I just bought a... a playing device uh, over like the a internet gaming one, yeah. a gaming one which uh -huh. was a hundred dollars uh, from Australia from an Australian Australian company um, and said let's start with that and try what you can do with it and it worked out really really good so wow. we had this gaming device basically just controlling a, a few um, basic signals to accelerate break and left and right and um, yeah we plugged it to the car that we already had equipped with uh, drive-by-wire and uh, yeah, all that stuff to make it drive autonomously. So we basically just built up on that layer as a new human-machine interface to just a new way how the mankind could communicate with the car by using um, thoughts. So with this um, uh, EEG devices, it's always uh, tricky to find the right person where it would work or what. So it's nothing we would test on the street. So we did this on closed grounds, but we could show uh, some huge successes, how it uh, works fluently uh, on video and uh, it caught up on YouTube with a few hundred thousand clicks and uh, especially in Britain it was uh, kind of popular. Um, so we made it into a, uh, a few of these shows, uh, they came over, made clips with us, uh, drove the autonomous cars. Um, and then the next step was really um, build that car to a level that we would get an exceptional permission for the street. So this was the big reputational goal to say, well, we want to be the first on the streets of Berlin, if not Germany. And so my professor came to me and said, well, this is your task now. Uh, get an exceptional permission uh, for us. And um, 
it's easy to underestimate this task. It's uh, especially in 2010, if you would approach an insurance company to say, well, we want to drive on the streets, can you insure our car? <laughs> um, they wouldn't have any statistics to calculate that risk. So for none of the underwriters would dare to just hand it out to you. After a few months, I was happy to get an offer, uh, but the offer was like 35,000 a year, which we hadn't planned in the budget. So um, we had to be creative and s say, well, this is a future topic and uh, your insurance might profit from our attention because here are all our YouTube clips. Have you seen them? And uh, would you be up to a deal that you do the sponsoring and you give the insurance, you put a sticker on the car? And uh, then we approached the right people at uh, the insurance, HDI it was at first. So they insured it with the insurance. I could go back to the Labo, the German office, to give those permissions for every vehicle, for every street vehicle. But yeah, um, at the end of the day, it was also a lot of formal aspects how to, uh, how to get the piece of paper to, to push it through. And this was um, something that I uh, am proud of helping to do that. It's like a loot machine. So you guys ended up getting the first autonomous vehicle on the streets in Berlin? I think we did, yes. Wow. I, I wouldn't know of any, any other. Um, we really drove autonomously from the street of 17th June, so from Brandenburger Gate uh, to Kaiserdamm. Uh, uh, yeah, had a lot of uh, press uh, um, public presentations there, a lot of people interested to drive with us, politicians, and so um, our main uh, currency was intention gained mm -hmm. to that point, yeah, and we uh, did some things differently than a usual research group um, since we have that, had that funding, and I think the ministry, ministry for Education and Research was very forward-looking in that way they structured that program. I skipped that first to those programs I mentioned, we applied for the money. It had um, two goals in mind to say, well, we want to encourage uh, research institutes to think one step ahead towards market. And the way to do it in our world is to, we put a business administration guy into that those research units, which was like a different way to, to spread that funding. Yeah, that was a requirement. I would never had my first job with uh, Mr. Hipe, who was head of that uh, Funding project wouldn't have that structure in mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, this worked out, uh, um, it was post its own challenges because it's new, but uh, some positive element was that we also had that funding to do some marketing and stuff. So um, we, the whole way we structured that group was we wanted to build a brand. It was the autonomous labs. We had, we were probably the first in the history of the free university who like, Build their own logo, their corporate mm -hmm. identity, you know, with the, with defined colors, with uh, uh, stuff like that. Um, put a lot of effort also in building a cult around it. You know, when we recruited uh, 
people in the university, it was easy for us because, oh yeah, I can join the autonomous group. So we were like wearing black hoodies with uh, the autonomous logo on it. So it was like um, that that cultural element on it to to create a a group. So you were kind of cre almost creating a little startup culture we, within the, the under the umbrella of the university. Exactly. It's interesting because you can you can tell just in you telling the story compared to your the previous chair that you work for versus the autonomous one is there was maybe a more of an entrepreneurial culture already baked into the organization where it was uh, let's keep pushing forward let's keep moving e everything is about momentum and progress which is something that's so critical in the startup world while in science you know although there's obviously a momentum to push forward it's much more methodical and mm -hmm. maybe slower and disciplined rather than that more aggressive push I agree to that comment. Yeah, in this case, it was just a bit more aligned. Um, and uh, when I started this job, I uh, I made this a requirement. This was the first thing I asked the professor: If I take this job, are you with me in founding a company? And uh, after we've through with the with the program for three years, so this was like my this was clear to me that. Cool. So now I want to hear that part. So you've you've been working within the the university context for a number of years. You've gotten a lot of press. You've made some milestones, taken the autonomous driving vehicle to the road. What's the journey from university to private sector? Yeah, there's definitely a lot uh, of uncertainty around uh, what part are we spinning out because, you know, there was no market for what we are doing. Though I, I always and we always uh, believed in that there is a need for it. Um, but we, it was not clear how we would commercialize, uh, completely not. So the next step was uh, looking for uh, other, research, other, other research fundings to, to cope with that gap, you know. Also, a bit of responsibility if you have like 12 people employed and then, you know, the funding ends, everybody is without a job. So, um, yeah, we tried to prevent that, keep the team, the core team with uh, road applications for other research projects, funding again. You might claim that this is also valuable teaching uh, in, uh, compared to a startup uh, in the same situation. You know. yeah. But um, for us it was, uh, yeah, we, we had the situation of finding our, our sweet spot where to, where to go and um, luckily we had already a broad portfolio of different things we could uh, uh, go into. So one of them being um, helping the Berlin Waste Management Company, the municipal, the biggest municipal waste management company in Europe, BSR, Berliner Stadtreinigung. And uh, we were lucky that the uh, former lead of the fleet there was very open towards innovation. So we, he liked what we were doing and he said, well, if you can make a car drive on the street, autonomously you must be able to solve my problems which are like way more real life basically the problem was that um, 12 ton 12,000 kilo uh, vehicles would go reverse and hit their own people hit other people on the street hit their own customers in front of the doorsteps if they have to go into a narrow street and don't see where they're driving so the way to prevent that was basically to make a rule say you mustn't drive backwards 
and then this rule exists for 35 years. Wow. Because nobody was able to solve it differently, so... They so they just couldn't drive backwards? They weren't allowed to drive backwards? They had to. But they had to, obviously. They yeah, had yeah. to. They had right. to do that every day mm-hmm. with breaking the rules. Wow. But the rule was you may not. Well, then they had some, some ways to make it possible, introducing somebody who walks behind it, waving mm-hmm. somebody in. So you wow. mustn't without somebody waving you in. Gotcha. But in real life, that's not always possible. Sure. It's very narrow streets and urge to be quick and so on. So he said, if you can solve that specific problem for us uh, with part of your technology, it would be, uh, would be a huge thing. So it wasn't necessarily a pivot but it was more opportunistic. You saw a different application of your technology than what you had originally anticipated that could be commercialized. Exactly. So you we, took we, a chance and ended up well, snowballing into more business. Well, there were like thousands of requests and ideas of, you know, what could we do? Uh, everybody has ideas what he could automate, uh, but not everybody was willing to pay for it. Um, to to make it happen so um this was like the what's the english word for lachmus test they're like this is it okay um whether um the the pain is big enough to make to commercialize this Mm -hmm. so um, from all the things you want to do which is what you want to pay for it you you have to uh, sponsor the whole trials you know Um, you believe more in the application than we do but we believe in the technology uh, that we could solve the problem so this was the main uh, urge for us to build technology. Uh, so, um, as you said, the ap- ap- application was uh, secondary, I would right. say, yes. And uh, we wanted, also wanted to stay broad enough to put it in different fields and to always with, at the end of the day, the end game is autonomous driving. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we could build uh, stereo cameras uh, instead of a, a laser scanner, you know, we have like... A, already saved a tenth of the cost so it's like uh, you start with a uh, laser scanner for 20 30 thousand and the uh, goal was to have a stereo cam for less than thousand so this was like we knew that one of the main hurdles to bring these technologies into the fields were the cost of the vehicle we equipped it in a scientific sphere with sensor stuff way over 200k so this would be like nothing uh, going mainstream yeah, right. so so the main goal for everybody working was invent stuff to make make it go broad mm-hmm. the good thing was that we were always uh, again broad enough had a good portfolio of assets and core technologies that we could apply to different fields we would never just bet on that one horse so at the same time we grew the company not uh, only with project by project in the waste management industry, but also by already creating maps for OEMs, car manufacturers and tier one suppliers that would like would like to test their own autonomous vehicles, but uh, didn't know how to yeah, uh, formulate the uh, the scenery that the cars could understand it. So we were already building our own maps, mm. and this was. Uh, it turned out to be a huge asset later that we uh, had the know-how of, um, of what's needed in the automotive, automotive sphere. We built some solutions that um, yeah, um, we really saw has an, had an effect. And even a small consulting business, which we were there, you know, we were like charging for our services. Uh, 
but we uh, al always had the agreement that uh, the technology we build on the way remains ours. Yeah. You don't get the code. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, basically, everything we did was in that mindset of bootstrapping. You know, we're doing this to learn what's needed, mm -hmm. but we also need this to put uh, uh, bread on the table and uh, maybe employ with every project, employ a few of our old guys from from the research team yeah. back again. and. After four years of doing so and doubling up each year from four to eight to 16 to 32, yeah, we had a team again that was like uh, a force uh, in that sphere. And uh, we had broad shoulders with a lot of different technologies in that sphere with a 10 year track record. And um, all we saw that. All patiently learning as you go, developing your technology and your knowledge base and applications and all well, just doing fee-for-service work to keep that process rolling. Yeah. So you maintained flexibility and stayed strategically bootstrapped for so many years. Then you found the opportunity with the waste management companies to provide product market fit. When you determined it was time to focus on the next stage of Autonomous, how did you decide to raise capital for growth? Yeah, so at the end of 2016 or during 2016, the idea formed to say, well, we now uh, we need a Series A funding. Uh, we are attractive enough. We have all the assets. And, um, you know, we come from that times where it, uh, venture capital was based on, on principles like monetarization and, uh, you know, we had to have a proof of concept, in best case, uh, something that has been done in other countries already and be a huge success, uh, would scale well. And, you know, all things we couldn't comply with as a service company that does deep tech stuff there. Um, so um, the first idea was not really to to look for venture capital, um, but then you know the 2016 things turned a bit, and we saw not necessarily the venture capitalists, but uh, especially the um, strategic investors um, and the big IT companies came into the game. Everybody was like uh, smelling the hype around autonomous driving, 
And um, basically every customer we had also mentioned whether he could have a steak. So um, the floor was already open for discussion. So we went into it and thought about uh, like giving a certain stake of the company for a certain funding that we would think would cover the next two years and really do uh, what we wanted to do. But it turned out the strategic investors would like to have it all. Mm. And it also wouldn't have been for our, to our benefit to have somebody with a strategic interest with a small fraction in, in the cap table because the interest to uh, increase the company value is just not there if you have to pay for it in the aftermath. So um, it was a quick decision to say, well, okay, then it, the Series A turns into an exit in best case, and now we're, we're talking uh, about that scenario. Yeah, so besides the money, the main argument for us was who of all the interested parties would be the most beneficial to follow our visions, to really bring technologies into a broad sphere of customers. And um, the turning point was or has always been the map for us, you know, so say, well, the map is the thing where all the information can be gathered, can be distributed. Every autonomous car can profit from that and we can help to do that because we know what a car needs. And um, so TomTom Tom was bringing something to the table that nobody else could offer to say, well, we have like 27 years of map making history. We are the revolutionaries of personal navigation devices. We showed that we can build technology and deliver it to everybody. So this was for us the perfect fit. And we saw that you know, we can bring more value to them than we can bring to Audi or BMW or any of the car manufacturers because like um, this is an, an leverage of technology we can bring the technology to all of them as customers so what we do today is um, building the next generation of maps for autonomous driving with TomTom the HD maps part of the product unit HD map and um, this is a great fit Wow, you know I think it's really unique in that you know you wanted to build a startup um, but you didn't go the traditional route you know, you went, you went into deep tech with someone without technical knowledge. You went through a university, which can pose some obstacles. You bootstrapped, which takes time. Instead of getting capital early to do the rocket fuel approach, you did fee for service to keep in operation. And then instead of raising large series A, you found a strategic acquisition exit as a way to really push the technology forward. If I'm hearing correctly, is that you came from a team that really valued the innovation and the technology over all other things. So many people want to build a startup so they can get rich and make a lot of money. But it sounds to me like your team was just so passionate and driven by the prospect of the future of this technology. Am I understanding that right? 100%, yeah. I, I think uh, <laughs> it's, it, I don't want to make it sound too altruistic. Uh, you know, if obviously there's a monetary uh, aspect in everything you do as a profession, you know, so of course we also if you take great financial risk, you want to uh, uh, gain the reward for it. Um, but um, uh, you're completely right when 
when money is your main motivation or in our case if it was the main motivation we would have done it differently um, you wouldn't work for an entry-level salary for eight years uh, so you would probably not have the grit to go through that not the uh, it or you're not or we were just naive or not smart enough to do it differently I don't know but uh, I, I think we could easily agree that in the team um, it is about bringing things forward. Now that you've exited to TomTom Tom and have the means to do almost anything that you want, do you still have that entrepreneurial bug pulling at your sleeve? I have a very comfortable way of, of still uh, peeking into those experiences now since I am uh, became a business angel myself now. Try to feed back to the ecosystem, you know, I just invested in uh, a few former members of our group and um, we're going that stony path again, uh, building substance uh, over appearance. Um, yeah, it's it's. Um, yeah, I can have that experience from the backseat now and uh, help them. Uh, yeah, get some some funding. Uh, I hope and um, yeah, I think it's a better time for that as well. I think uh, investors are open for deep tech now. Uh, Berlin is not only internet business anymore. We are uh, attracting and uh, uh, a lot of. Uh, People from the automotive sphere, uh, really uh, tech companies are coming and are opening up their European headquarters here. So I think the timing is right now. And so that's why what my main outcome is not that we did it right. We did it right for us to that time. So I, I think uh, you always have to, Put it to be aware of that. There is yeah. no textbook, uh, no... Right. Yeah. Just because we're pressed for time, um, I want to ask you just a couple personal questions to know a little bit about Patrick the man, not just Patrick the entrepreneur. First one I want to ask, is there something that you're reading or listening to right now that you would make as a recommendation? During my 20s and even 30s, uh, I was still like into those uh, uh, self-finding literature when you can like Hermann Hesse, the, the classics. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now um, I, it's funny that um, my little sister, and, yeah, she gave me a book, The Dark Side of the Moon, from Martin Sutter, uh, and it's about a guy. This guy is a, basically a. It, it reveals a lot of the psychology in bureaucracies and you know those uh, how it can drive people to a certain point 
uh, and the the interpersonal aspect of working in a machine like that you know if you're just like a part of that machine and have to you have to function like that I really liked how he how he delivered that in this book uh, that's definitely a, something I would recommend the last question I want to ask and I kind of already know the answer to this because I've driven around with you in your car. What kind of music? What's cycling on your playlist these days, my friend? Uh, yeah, it depends who's sitting with me in the car. I have to admit. So oh. there are a lot of. Uh, <laughs> I, I try to match it to the audience uh, a bit. Um, if I'm by myself, I listen to a lot of hip hop that I can play with my son and my uh, uh, girlfriend is sitting with me. And actually, that's a big factor of living in Berlin. Yeah, I come to see all those bands here, uh, that were heroes in my youth. Uh, you know, I go to Smashing Pumpkins in June. Nice. Uh, Raconteurs are uh, coming, I think, in May. You know, stuff like that. So the real guitar, uh, honest music, I, I can enjoy that very much. And uh, also to to go to live concert is, is still something that makes me feel good. <laughs> Patrick, and my friend. I could have this conversation all day. Um, maybe we'll get to do it again and dig deeper into some of these many, many other subjects that we didn't get to touch on, but it was such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. And I just want to say, you know, I, I think back a few times ago that we got together in Berlin. I think I was in the midst of my startup grind and you were still in the very early stages of being a support on a, uh, a university team. and. Um, how far you've come, I'm, I'm proud to call you a friend and just so impressed by all you've accomplished, man. Hey, thanks for saying that. Um, uh, yeah, I also appreciate our, our, every time we bump into each other, it's great to have these conversations and I hope it doesn't take another five years to do that again. Well, folks, that was my dear friend Patrick Fogel former co-founder and CFO of Autonomous GmbH and current site owner of TomTom Berlin. Coming soon in episode five, we'll speak with Dr. Tim Taba, WHU Kellogg Executive MBA alum and co-founder CEO of Credit Shelf, a recently IPO'd five-year-old startup that provides a marketplace to connect investors and small business borrowers for alternative financing opportunities. Talk about a meteoric rise. I think you'll enjoy it. Bis nächstes Mal.